Hi, I'm Jeff Ranke, Editorial Director of Manufacturing.net and Manufacturing Business Technology. Welcome to Security Breach. The surge in cyber attacks experienced by the industrial sector has been credited to a number of issues, ranging from outdated security software to lagging protocols surrounding data access and storage. But according to today's guest, one of the main reasons we've seen an uptick in these attacks could simply be because they're more profitable. Joel Burleson Davis is the CTO of SecureLink, a leading provider of secure access management solutions. He notes that in addition to manufacturing being the second most targeted sector, it offers the largest average payout for ransomware attacks. So the industrial sector now faces the multifaceted realities of attacks that are more complex, Russian hackers more emboldened by the Ukrainian conflict, and a greater number of vulnerabilities stemming from an uptick in connected devices throughout manufacturing. Here to discuss all that is Joel. Thanks for joining us today. Joel, we've heard so much about all this uptick in cyber uh, security concerns for the industrial sector, increase in attacks, particularly on the ransomware side. From your perspective, what is making manufacturing such an appealing target for all these bad actors? You know, number one, it's really disruptive, right? And so you're going to, you know, the likelihood of getting a payout or doing some real damage or sort of getting your way is really high, right? Like when you shut down a pipeline, you know, and gas <laughs> stops flowing, like you make your message pretty clear, right? So um, sort of the visibility and the impact and sort of, you know, th that sort of splash that you can make with, uh, you know, hitting critical infrastructures is a pretty big deal. Um, you know, especially if these ransomware gangs are, you know, trying to get money, you know, out of folks, you know, that's a really good way you know, to sort of make your presence known. Um, so, you know, the sort of impact of visibility or the optics of it is one. Um, the second is just the, the sort of state of current, you know, operational technology in general. Um, you know, like any industry, as you go through sort of digital or technological change, you're going to have legacy stuff. You're going to have gaps. You're going to, um, you know, not have all of your, you know, uh, pieces in order. And so as these, you know, critical infrastructure like this is open to, you know, connectivity, and it was never meant to be open for, you know, broad connectivity, the sort of the attack surface of the entire sort of industry has just exploded. Um, and, you know, teams are doing a really good job of trying to close those gaps and uh, do what they can. But, you know, with a, the attack surface kind of like exponentially growing, uh, it makes it really easy you know, if like someone accidentally opens up, you know, a PLC that, you know, was on an internal network for the last 20 years, never had any expectation of getting connected to the internet, suddenly is, you know, that's that's really easy to get into. Um, so it would have been nice if, you know, manufacturing or critical infrastructure could have like completely updated every single thing that ever existed in all of their factories and, you know, what the capital expenditure there would look like before they then connected to the internet or something like that. But, you know, we live in the real world and so that can't happen. No, it makes sense. And we've heard some of that before and you're right, having that kind of hindsight would be pretty amazing. Uh, awesome. Look at things right now. You know, again, ransomware, as you alluded to, is a huge concern specific to the industrial sector. Are there any groups that you're seeing that are playing a more pivotal role or really making themselves more known than, than others? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a few groups, but just the, the industry in general, um, because there have been successful ransomware attacks, um, you know, and there's been payouts to groups like that. Um, you know, ideally, we would never pay them at all, right? There would never be a payoff, you know, and so anybody even interested in getting into the game would there'd be no no reason for them. 
Um, you know, but people do, right? They like have to get their businesses up and going. Um, but it ends up in sort of a tragedy of the common scenario, right? Like, um, it's like ideally no one would ever pay ransomware gang. Um, and, uh, you know, and then that sort of like, you know, malicious behavior would just like disappear, just go extinct because there's no benefit to it. Uh, you know, but then you get hit, like your factory gets hit or your pipeline gets hit and you go, well, no one should, but we're going to, because this is really painful for us, you know, and then more and more people make that same decision. And then now you've got this like, you know, underground industry that's really lucrative, right? And so then you're funding, you know, those groups, right? So they're like, you know, uh, you know, there's a, a number of like very prominent, like Russian hacker groups and stuff like that, like Conti and stuff like that. But you're also in incentivizing new players to join the space, right? Because there's funding there, um, you know, there's there's going to be payoff. And so, you know, the space in general is just growing, uh, you know, because they've been successful. Uh, and so it's a, it's a really hard scenario to be in, you know, especially when you're the one feeling the pain, you know, it makes sense <laughs> yeah. that you're like, yeah, like I know, like conceptually, maybe ethically that I should not pay this ransomware, but I can, I can like solve my pain right now if I do. Um, and so it's sort of that continued success, you know, and that sort of decision-making has, I think, just made that whole sort of underground industry just blossom. Absolutely. Are, do any of these um, these ransomware players have sort of their signature move or anything like that? Can you tell sort of by the tactics where it's coming from at all? Or are they kind of similar in nature? I mean, they probably do, right? If you probably analyze, you can you, you pick up the signature. It's like, oh, these are, you know, X, Y, or Z person. Um, I mean, they're going to be, there's a lot of similarities between them. Um, and they're all going to have different motivations, right? So you have, you know, your sort of state level actors doing something like they did with SolarWinds, where they're trying to infiltrate just so they can, you know, have sort of a, sort of a sleeper breach that they can activate at some time to create some pain somewhere, sure. um, you know, and then you're going to have other ones that are showing up and they're hitting hard and fast and they're just trying to get sort of their payoff and things like that. So, uh, you know, one of the things that's really sort of good to look at, like, as you see these breaches happen, um, you look at the, what, uh, ransomware, you know, what they're sort of getting out of it is, you know, what that sort of mix is between like, you know, players in it just because it's a, like a, quick buck or it's a lot of it's a quick lot of money you know or if it's going to be sort of the you know even more nefarious sort of state level actor that's just trying to infiltrate so that they can create like wide scale or large scale pain um and so you know as we you know sort of look at you know the you know ransomware groups that are um you know active it's like what is that sort of mix going there um and when it's the state level actor to cause widespread pain scenario that's that gets me very nervous right the yeah. the other's just sort of business you can uh, you 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 can sort of deal with it the same way right yeah. if the if the market goes away those actors will go away you know but when you're talking about sort of state level threats they they won't right they're in it for a different reason no that's an interesting distinction to make it's a great point you know we we talk a lot about these attacks are going to happen we talk a lot about the, the things that we can do to defend ourselves from those attacks, but inevitably they may happen anyway, regardless of our best efforts. When you think about a response plan for manufacturers to have, what do you see as some of the key components to be ready with in responding to these types of attacks? 
Yeah, I mean, number one, like having the capacity or the resources to respond, right? Like, um, you know, if you're understaffed on or you don't have a third party or like someone else that's going to help you do your instant response, um, you know, even detecting a breach, if you don't have the resources to actually respond or plan for any of those instant response, it'll it'll be nice for you to know that you're about to go down, you know, but if you don't have the resources to prevent it or recover from it, um, you know, that, that knowledge isn't super useful because uh, you won't actually be able to dig yourself out of that. Um, if you do have those resources, so we can start there, right? If you don't have resource constraint, which ideally you don't, you know, around the sort of skills and capabilities you'd need to respond to something like that, uh, then it's, you, you sort of need to have a plan. Um, and it's particularly useful to sort of inventory your most critical assets, right? Sort of like the crown jewels of your enterprise. Because if you inventory those and you can work, you know, from those back. Um, so if something like this happens, you know, ideally they never get to the crown jewels, right? Ideally they never get to something that, you know, if they have control of it is so painful to your business that you're going to want to then, you know, pay up. Right. And so, you know, that's the next plan. So you're like, Hey, I need to start remediating or protecting. Let's start at sort of the crown jewel scenario, you know, and work our way out from there. Um, you know, but like day one, or, you know, if you're just th start thinking about starting a program, you know, like that's, that's sort of where you start. It's like, do I have the resources? Do I have a plan? Um, and then, you know, start from those crown jewels and sort of build a security program out from there. Makes a lot of sense. So we've been talking a lot about the bad guys, Joel. Maybe you can tell us about one of the good guys. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the work SecureLink does and some of the folks you work with? Yeah, totally. Um, so SecureLink, I mean, we've been around for about 18 years, um, you know, and, and we've been specializing in sort of critical access management. Um, we've called it a bunch of different things through the years, um, you know, but that's what we've basically always done. Uh and it really comes to like, hey, where are the soft spots? You know, for us, when we started the, the company about 18 years ago, it's the third party, it's the supply chain, it's the vendor, you know, in almost any organization, that's your soft spot. Um, and the really interesting thing is that was sort of true 20 years ago, and it's still true today. It's even more true today, right? Like the interconnectedness of, you know, business to business, you know, third party supplier, supply chain. I mean, we've seen supply chain attacks um, you know, that continues to be this really soft spot, uh, you know, across industries. Um, so, you know, us focusing there, this is sort of going back to that, that dynamic for the crown jewels. Like, you know, we help, you know, by managing, you know, securing access to critical systems and data. Um, you know, we, we help very quickly make sure that you can say, Hey, I've got my crown jewels protected. And then you can work on the rest of your, your technology program after that, or your security program. Makes sense. You know, one of the things that's shaping cybersecurity initiatives as well are things going on in Ukraine right now. In addition to supply chain struggles and just the moral dilemma that it's created, it's also brought to light a lot of cybersecurity tactics that both sides are using as part of the war. What are you seeing coming out of this conflict and how could it affect U.S. manufacturing from a cybersecurity perspective? Yeah, so th this actually also goes back to sort of the concern about state level actors. Uh, you know, I, I was talking about it, you know, uh, actually before the sort of Ukraine conflict really started, um, that if the U.S. was to ever, um, you know, put sanctions on Russia or the West was to put sanctions on Russia, you know, that's sort of like economic warfare, um, you know, there's going to be retaliation. And, you know, one of the right ways to do retaliation is, you know, uh, uh, 
you know, breaching security, creating widespread pain by taking over pipelines or factories or plants, um, you know, and sort of responding with the economic pain they're feeling from sanctions with some economic pain of your own. So sort of tit for tat scenario, um, you know, and so now that the conflict actually broke out and we're in that we've done sanctions, we're seeing that exact same thing. You know, it's like new sanction on Russia, they're coming at infrastructure. You know, they're going to want to shut down factories. They're going to want to shut down pipelines. They're going to want to, you know, um, you know, shut down the industrial sector to hurt us, right? To create some economic pain, you know, in the West. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what, what comes out of there. You know, we've got all of these different converging factors right now. When you look at the industrial sector and trying to be safe from some of these bad actors, ransomware, phishing, you were mentioning, you've talked a lot about state-sponsored actors. Putting your prognosticator hat on a little bit, if we look 12, 18 months down the road, what do you think are some of the bigger challenges, obstacles, issues that we're going to be seeing from a cybersecurity perspective? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things, but like the, the, the number one thing that we're going to see, you know, more and more, and it, this is just a like a pragmatic study, uh, thing, is that the, the embrace of zero trust. Um, you know, like the, the pain that we've seen over the last few years, especially in like supply chain attacks, um, you know, make it really clear, like the old perimeter doesn't exist, um, you know, which was in, you know, in the industrial sector was a real thing. I mean, your perimeter was so solid because you were fully disconnected from, you know, uh, the rest of the world. Um, now that the you know, old perimeter doesn't exist, um, you know, there needs to be a, like an embrace of sort of new technologies, in, in particularly around zero trust. Um, you know, there's there's been directives, uh, you know, from the federal government about sort of helping embrace zero trust. But I think over particularly the pain we've had, this Ukraine conflict. And so over the next 12 to 18 months, I think most people should and will be sort of racing towards how do I get, you know, how do I start embracing this zero trust dynamic? Because, you know, that old perimeter is just gone. Sure. I'm glad you brought up zero trust. It's a really interesting topic in and of itself. From your perspective, maybe could you just give us a brief, how you define it, how you look at it, and some of the challenges that you're seeing with the folks you're working with really embracing that strategy? Yeah, so I mean, so zero, I mean there's a lot of different ways. I mean, there, I know there's a sort of semi-official way, ways to talk yeah. about it. Um, but the dynamic is, it's, uh, you know, and we've, like there's a long-standing um, sort of axiom in security, like least privilege and all that stuff. And it's just taking that, even further, um, you know, at some point in most technology infrastructures, you trust something at some point um, in a, the ideal scenarios to, to not have to do that. Um, you know, there's there was a movement recently to start talking about like identity as the new perimeter, but that's just another element. It's like, hey, how trustworthy, you know, what's my confidence level about this identity being the real identity? Um, you know, even when we started before zero trust was a thing, you know, one of the things that currently did, we verified employment, um, it was it was really useful. It's like, hey, does this yeah. person actually work for, you know, Rockwell, right? If they don't, they can't get in, right? It's like, right. how much do I trust this identity? Like, what's what's my confidence level of that identity? Um, and it's identity on both sides, right? As well, it's the identity of the machine, the data, the data, right? Understanding what that is, what the sort of, you know, surface is for that, you know, having an inventory of how you know valuable and what that is, and starting to piece those things together, so you you can draw these absolutely fine grain access into, you know, that are time-based as well. Like temporal control is a really important thing. Um, so, you know, in our scenario, it's like, hey, this, 
you know, technical services person from Rockwell needs 30 minutes of access, um, into, you know, my plant to this one PLC, um, I'm going to verify their identity. Right. And I, and I know that they're only able to connect to that one PLC and that 30 minutes is gone. Right. There's no open access. There's no, you know, dynamic of trusted vendor or trusted third party. Um, or in, in a lot of scenarios, there's no idea of like trusted employee or, you know, trusted systems and stuff like that. You, you start sort of drawing those fine, fine lines between sort of identity and access to a system or data. So is it that the fact that it's much more rigid <clears throat> doesn't give as much flexibility to, from a user's perspective that really inhibits the implementation of that type of strategy? Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. And so for, you know, for software providers like, you know, SecureLink, one of our big, you know, one of the big challenges that we have, that we have to, that we have, you know, and we'll continue to have to sort of rise to is making that easy, right? Automating a bunch of that, making that sort of simple to adopt. Um, because if, you know, there's a giant amount of friction to adopt, you know, like a zero trust sort of technology, it'll just get either thrown away completely or misused, right? Yeah. So like, you know, that, that friction to adopt is a real thing. Um, you know, like the, uh, there's this like uh, thing that we say, you know, the maximum utility of a system, right? Versus its security, they're sort of inversely related. Um, and so like the, the most secure machine is like turned off, right? In the closet, <laughs> disconnected from everything. It's not very useful, right? Um, and so, you know, if as you're implementing something like zero trust or any of uh, these technologies, you know, that sort of effort or friction to introduce them like massively reduces the utility of the system, uh, you know, organizations and people and, you know, employees and, you know, contractors, they'll reject it. Um, you know, so the, the big challenge for, you know, software right now is to reduce that friction sort of adoption for adoption so that we can keep building this sort of ecosystem of sort of zero trust. Thanks, Joel. For more information on the work SecureLink does, you can go to www.securelink.com. Thanks for joining us today. And to catch up on past episodes, you can go to manufacturing.net, ien.com, or mbtmag.com. For Joel Burleson Davis, I'm Jeff Ranke, and this is Security Breach.